Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Andrew Claven is a screenwriter, author, and two-time Edgar Award winner. Among his works are internationally best-selling crime novels, True Crime, and Don't Say a Word. Both novels would be adapted into screenplays and go on to Hollywood success, the former being directed by Clint Eastwood and the latter directed by and starring Michael Douglas. A prolific author, he has also written thrillers for young adults, including the best-selling Homelander series and a number of nonfiction works, including a memoir of his religious journey, A Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. That personal story formed the basis of his keynote address at the Acton Institute's 29th annual dinner on October 15, 2019. Clavin shared the story of his journey from atheism to faith in Jesus Christ and laid out his views on how to speak about faith in a culture that has largely abandoned not only biblical truth, but the very idea of truth itself. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Vault on our website at acton.org slash actonvault. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thank you very much. I know you're, you're missing the Democrat debate to be here tonight. <laughs> but you don't have to thank me. It, it really is uh, an, an honor to speak here. I'm a big fan of the Acton Institute. Um, I followed their work. If, if there's anyone here who uh, more than occasionally listens to my podcast, you will have heard me uh, quote Lord Acton, read a quote of his that begins, at all times, sincere friends of freedom have been rare. Uh, it is good, very good, coming from L.A., uh, to be at a gathering of those sincere friends. As a novelist, uh, I'm always on the lookout for some metaphor or symbol that will neatly communicate an intriguing truth about the human condition and the age we're living in. One metaphor that frequently comes to my mind these days is the self-curating information app. I have several of these on my iPhone and iPad. They're those gizmos that somehow track the articles you read so they can offer you more of what you like. And part of what fascinates me about these things is that like a lot of digital innovations like internet porn or time-wasting online games, self-curating information apps seem to have been invented not to solve a problem or make life easier, but to exacerbate a human foible, to make one of our flaws even worse. It's as if the inventor had said to himself, yes, all men have fallen short of the glory of God, but not as far as they'll be able to fall with my amazing new app. The self-curating information app seems programmed to facilitate what the shrinks call confirmation bias, our tendency to process and analyze information in such a way that it supports our pre-existing convictions. My self-curating information apps select articles for me to read according to my tastes, and in doing this, they serve my prejudices and gradually eliminate from my newsfeed any facts or ideas that might disturb my self-certainty or undermine my preconceived notions. They work so well that many times, and I'm not making this up, this has happened to me quite a lot, 
I will open the app to find it filled with articles written by me. I've, I've essentially been reduced to ranting to myself like one, like one of those poor schizophrenic guys you see on the street sometimes who are shouting into a cell phone that's been broken for months. Now, it's not an original insight to say that we live in a niche culture. We are, each of us, increasingly immersed in our own little world of self-confirming ideas. If Jean-Paul Sartre was right and hell is other people, we should all feel now that we're in a nice little heaven of our own. But Jean-Paul Sartre was never right about anything. That's actually how you become a famous French philosopher. And I don't think we've begun to come to terms with what a disaster this culture of intellectual isolation really is. In the mazes of our self-curating information universes, the voices of those who disagree with us can only reach us distorted by the filter of our own convictions. We can hear what they're saying, but we can't imagine why they're saying it. Debate seems impossible, outreach seems impossible, even common civility sometimes seems impossible. This is especially disastrous for those of us in the counterculture, the cultural minority. I'm speaking, of course, about you and me. Those members of the thinking classes who believe in God and the human creature made in his image. Many of us now spend our days in a constant state of flabbergasted consternation at the absolute and utter nonsense that comes out of the mouths of seemingly intelligent people. Men who seem smart enough to tie their own ties and, wi and women mentally capable of doing whatever women do before they finally come out of the bathroom in the morning <laughs> look into cameras and speak into microphones and with straight faces make statements that they themselves have to know are completely insane. Gender is a social construct and therefore a man who believes he is a woman is a woman in fact. Abortion, moments before birth, even sometimes after birth, the killing of a newborn baby is a woman's right as opposed to a horrific atrocity. All cultures are equally deserving of respect because morality is relative. Not only are these statements absurd on the face of it, but in spite of that, or possibly because of that, they have come to be protected by an increasingly elaborate system of customs and manners that is enforced by societal sanction. On any given day, you can wake up to find that what human beings have known to be true for thousands of years has suddenly become unspeakable. And if you don't sign on to believing the new lie, you're a bigot, a sexist, a homophobe, some kind of hater, and must be punished. To say that men and women are inherently different, or that transgender women are not women at all, or that an actual real live woman has exactly zero moral right to terminate the life insider, or that some savage and oppressive culture is self-evidently inferior to our own, all of these obviously true statements can get you banned from or bullied on your social media platform, excoriated in the press, or fired from your job. Let me give you one recent example that I think is illustrative of the greater point I'm going to make. In England, a Christian doctor was fired from a department of the National Health Service for refusing to accept the idea that a man who says he's a woman is a woman. The idea offended him both as a scientist and as a Christian. When he appealed his firing, the court ruled against him. The judge wrote 
that belief in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 is, quote, incompatible with human dignity, unquote. Genesis 1.27 reads, God created man in his image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. The Imago Dei, the source of our idea of human dignity, the reason we believe that human beings have dignity, was declared by a British court to be incompatible with human dig dignity, unlike, say, a six-foot-four man with a beard putting a dress on and calling himself Sally. Where the Imago Dei is deemed out of keeping with human dignity, where the killing of infants is permitted in the name of women's rights, where the butchering of children is encouraged in the name of gender identity, and the silencing of dissent in the name of sensitivity is increasingly approved, the people of God have indeed become strangers in a strange land. We may be forgiven for wondering not merely how we can win back the West's intelligentsia to some semblance of sanity, but how we can communicate with such degraded imbeciles at all. How can, how can we begin to rebuild a culture of truth when we are living in an empire of lies? I feel my own personal experience offers some hints on how to answer this question. For a long time, I was tangled in the web of some of our mainstream culture's most absurd self-deceptions. I struggled with them constantly in my thought and in my work. As a young man, a modern man, a sophisticated, urban, intellectual man, I was schooled in moral relativism from university upward. It was the intellectual sea in which I swam. The theme of all my early novels was the inescapable subjectivity of human perception, the impossibility of putting your hand or your mind on anything that could reasonably be called reality. All the heroes of my novels were bedeviled by the same questions. How can we ever know what is truly true or whether there is truly truth at all? I was writing a novel called True Crime when I experienced a breakthrough. I was just turning 40 then and was beginning to meditate on mortality. The novel is about a man on death row, which is to say it uses a man on death row as a metaphor for the human condition. In the opening scene, the condemned man awakens from a dream of freedom to find himself inescapably in his cell, undeniably awaiting execution. He reflects that there can be no true confusion between dreams and reality. Death itself draws the dividing line. Death puts a limit on the subjectivity of perception and therefore on the relativity of truth. That understanding was the beginning of my turn toward faith, my turn toward God. It had been a long, long journey to reach that crossroad. For most of my life, I was an agnostic, which means in practice I was an atheist. I was born and raised a Jew. It was important to my father that my brothers and I were taught the rituals and traditions of the Jewish people but neither of my parents had any active belief in God. Without God, religious rituals and traditions, wise and beautiful though they may be, seemed nothing but an empty show to me. I was reluctantly bar mitzvahed by my father's decree, but in the aftermath, I felt like a hypocrite. I had declared myself a living member of a faith, but I had no faith because I'd been raised to have no faith. One night when my family was asleep, I crept out of my house 
carrying a box full of the jewelry and savings bonds I'd received as bar mitzvah gifts. I buried the box deep in the trash can outside so it would be carted off by the garbage man in the morning before anyone found it. That was my declaration that I was done with the inauthenticity of godless religion. From then on, through a mentally troubled youth, I was committed to what I and others have called the burden of unknowing. I continued to carry this burden even when, at 28, I went insane. I became crippled by rage and hypochondria. I was lost in self-aggrandizing fantasies and bizarre mysticism. I yearned for faith but refused to give in to my yearning. I felt it would be weak and cowardly to use God as an imaginary lifesaver to keep me from drowning in my own misery. When I look back now, it's painfully obvious to me that God was continually calling out to his tormented child, but I absolutely refused to hear him. I was a modern man, a sophisticated man, an urban intellectual man. I mean, I was submerged in the relativistic insanity of modern, sophisticated urban intellectual life. To acknowledge my supernatural creator would have betrayed my integrity as a thinker. I was trapped inside a genuine paradox. For me to accept the truth of God would have been dishonest. I believe that God, in his mercy, solved this riddle for me. He put aside his majesty for my sake. He even put his name aside in order to speak to me in secular terms I could understand and accept. Once, using this method, he even pulled me back from the brink of suicide. I was about 30 then. I was in despair. I was sitting alone in a dark room, plotting my own death. I was repeating over and over in my mind, like a mantra, the words, I don't know how to live. I don't know how to live. A baseball game was playing on the radio in the background. A hero of mine, the catcher, Gary Carter, hit a ground ball single. After the game, an interviewer asked him how he had managed to beat the throw to first base when his knees had been ruined by squatting in the catcher's position for so many years. Carter was a devout and outspoken Christian. He was always talking to interviewers about Jesus Christ this or praise Jesus that. I absolutely hated this about him. (laughs) Every time he did it, it made me shudder as if someone had dropped a worm down the back of my shirt. If he had praised Jesus that day, I would have ignored him. But oddly, he didn't mention Christ at all. Instead, as I sat there reciting to myself, I don't know how to live, Carter said simply, sometimes you just have to play in pain. Those words struck deep into my heart. I seized on them instantly. I thought, I can do that. And I made the decision to live. Like all good modern men of that time, I was immersed in the atheistic ideas of Sigmund Freud. So God sent me a psychiatrist of genius who healed my mind and saved my life. It was only then, then when I found mental health and happiness and professional success, when I was no longer afraid that faith would merely be a crutch in troubled times, it was only then I was able to trust myself and to ferret out the flaws in the world's philosophy. It took me about 10 years to work it out. If there is no truth, then it can't be true that there is no truth. If death is real, then life also must be real. And if life is real, then our healthy perceptions of reality, our experience of love and the good, must be at least a human version of the truth and therefore grounded in ultimate truth. In mental health, I could see what I could not see in misery and madness, the logical steps that lead to God and the human experience of God 
Who is that worm down the back of our shirts? Jesus Christ. This discovery filled me and continues to fill me to this day with so much serenity and joy that I have sometimes gone before God and complained to him that he allowed me to waste so much of my life before I found him. I've said to him, Lord, Jew though I am, why did you let me wander in the wilderness for 40 years? <laughs> before I came into your promise. The answer I received was this. God wanted me to make every intellectual error it is possible to make before I stumbled like a gormless idiot on the simple truth. That way, even in jubilant sanity, I would have compassion on an intellectual world mired in so much unnecessary sorrow and pain. So let me tell you what this experience taught me, because I believe it contains a clue to how we can speak truth into a culture that seems in the grip of increasingly bizarre delusions. The people who are talking nonsense now, the artists and the philosophers and commentators and journalists and politicians, the people who say there's no essential difference between men and women, between the blessing of new life and the evil of abortion, between the superiority of free cultures and the inferiority of slave states, these sophisticated people who are babbling words of lunatic stupidity are not just babbling words of lunatic stupidity. They are babbling words of lunatic stupidity that make perfect sense if there is no God. If there is no ultimate truth, there can be no truth at all. If there is no ultimate good, there can be no good at all. If there is no ultimate love, there can be no love at all, no real spiritual or emotional experience at all. Indeed, if there is no ultimate spirit, there is no spirit whatsoever. Each of us is just a meat puppet with a chemistry set inside. This materialist outlook is so pervasive now that it affects all of us, even those of us who have faith, treat ourselves like we're just meat and chemistry. Listen to the way we talk. When we're excited, we say we have an adrenaline rush. When we're happy, we say it's a dopamine rush, as if the chemicals cause the emotions, which doesn't even make sense when you think it through. We take medicine for depression as if our spiritual distress were a chemical event. I'm not opposed to the judicious use of medications, but isn't it odd that with all these wonderful antidepressants available, suicide rates in the U.S. have risen 33% in the last 20 years? When you adopt this materialist worldview, madness follows with perfect logic. If you're a man but want to be a woman, you need only mutilate your flesh and take hormones, and will be so. If you're a meat puppet plus a chemistry set, change the meat, change the chemistry, and you have changed everything. It makes sense that a baby can be slaughtered without conscience. What is it, after all? What are any of us but a cluster of dividing cells? Meat. Chemistry. Communism makes sense because a nation of slaves who all have the same amount of money is more practical than a nation of free men who experience some natural inequality. What good is freedom to a meat puppet? What does a meat puppet need besides meat? All the nonsense our elites believe is logical in a godless world. It only seems insane because it is insane, because we don't live in a godless world. Their logic is not built on the facts. Their reality is not real. How then do we begin to speak into the madhouse that is our current culture? Again, I think my own life provides an example. If God himself could lay aside his holy name to speak into my despair, then we too can have the humility 
to make our arguments from the ground up. This does not mean we should fall for the lie that a secular outlook is somehow the neutral default setting of public discourse. Secularism is a cult. It endangers our freedoms because it attempts to solve spiritual problems by increasingly oppressive materialistic and political means. Socialism replaces charity. Enforced inclusion replaces love of neighbor. Me too anger and legalism replace manly honor and womanly virtue. Climate panic replaces eschatology and on and on. We can't pretend to join that cult of secularism, but we can learn to present God in ways that secular people can understand if they choose. This is strangely not a solution that religious people always like to hear. A few years ago, a well-heeled Christian organization invited me to appear on a discussion panel with other Christian artists. We were asked the question, what is the mission of a Christian artist in our time? I replied that I would be happy if I could convince thinking people that there is such a thing as truth. The writer next to me became livid. He scolded me. He told me there was only one truth, Jesus Christ, and that it was our job to preach that truth to those who did not believe. He spoke so angrily that he later came up to me and apologized. But I was the one who was never invited back to speak to that group again. <laughs> that actually made sense to me. What he was saying was appealing and comforting. What I was saying was tragic and hard. I was telling them just how bad things are. I was saying to them that we have lost the fight at the highest levels of Hollywood, the news industry, and the academy. God is dead there. Not dead in fact, of course, but dead to our best minds as he was once dead to me. Within my lifetime, a charismatic evangelist like Billy Graham could preach Jesus to the man on the street and start a revival. A heroic pope like John Paul II could declare Christ to the nations and the walls of their unbelief would come tumbling down. They had the power of a tradition behind them, a Bible full of stories everyone knew, a history of deep intellectual arguments that the very name of Jesus Christ expressed. Those Bible stories have been erased from our curricula and forgotten. Those arguments have been demonized and silenced. We have to tell the stories again. We have to make the arguments again. I am speaking from my experience. I didn't come to God because I discovered God. I couldn't discover him. He was forbidden to exist under the intellectual rules of my culture. I came to God because I discovered that those rules were false. I came to God because through stories and reasoning, I discovered there was such a thing as truth, and from that discovery, faith logically, inexorably followed. When I speak at universities, I sometimes tell them that all Western civilization was built on the shoulders of two men, Socrates and Jesus. These two men had a good deal in common. Both were born into a time when many sophisticated people believed that there was no such thing as moral truth. Both men believed in moral truth, but both also knew that the truth is subtle and has to be approached by half measures. Socrates approached truth by asking people questions until the received wisdom of their culture collapsed into the nonsense it was. Jesus approached the truth by telling parables and becoming a living parable himself. If we have lost the basis of our civilization, if the Imago Dei, the source of human dignity, is now thought incompatible with human dignity, then we must go back to the beginning. We must imitate Socrates and Jesus. We must ask questions 
tell stories ourselves. In the universities, on the news sites, in podcasts and debates, we should put aside the language of self-certainty, outrage, and condemnation and take up the Socratic language of inquiry. If you believe there is no absolute good and evil and that therefore all cultures are morally equal, how then can it be evil to hate another culture, there being no evil or good in the first place? If gender is a construct and there is no essential difference between men and women, then when a man is a woman on the inside, how does he know? Likewise, we must learn to tell stories, write novels, make movies and TV shows that speak to people where they are. This is why I disagree with religious people when they say, for instance, that there's too much sex and profanity and violence in today's art and entertainment. As an artist, my job is to represent the world as it is, and there are times I can't do that without sex and profanity and violence. What matters is that in those stories that step into the dark side of existence, the darkness operates like an arrow pointing to the light. In my case, for instance, it was reading Dostoevsky's novel, Crime and Punishment, that began my long turn away from moral relativism. It's a grim tale of an axe murderer who falls in love with a prostitute. Go into a Christian bookstore today and ask them for a book about an axe murderer who falls for a hooker and see, and see what it gets you. They specialize in affirmation and consolation because they're speaking to their fellow Christians, fair enough. But you can't say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus to those who are repelled by the sound of his name. We must do as he did and go to them where they are. Socrates and Jesus should be our guides to rebuilding the culture they built in the first place. And when we are attacked for this, damned, banned, fired, and all the rest, we should remember one more similarity between these two men. Both were assassinated by the powers that be. Both had to die before their philosophies reshaped the intellectual landscape. If we have lost the world their wisdom made, if we must begin at the beginning, then like Socrates and Jesus, we must enter the marketplace, the classroom, the theater, and the tavern where the young sinners gather. Like Socrates and Jesus, we are going to have to ask questions and tell stories. And as for the consequences, like Socrates and Jesus, we're going to have to take our chances. Thank you very much. Once again, thank you for listening to Act and Vault. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you, and we also love feedback from our listeners. If you're familiar with our content or you've attended an Acton event that you'd really love to hear again in a future episode, let us know by emailing us at producer at Until next time, for Acton Vault, I'm Eric Cohn.